Hi, I'm Trish from Chicago. I'm Lisa from Wyoming. Hi, I'm Aaron from New York. The Sound of Young America America, (laughs) is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, which I just did about five minutes ago and it was really exciting, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio Sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of... It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, for 20 years now, my guest, Farrell Monch, has built a reputation as your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. He's managed to combine the ferocity of street hip-hop with astonishing technical proficiency and thoughtful, incisive lyrics. He's now working on a follow-up to his second solo record, Desire, and he's headlining the Brooklyn Hip-Hop Festival in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, one of my all-time favorites as well. Farrell, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I want to I want to run something by you. I read somewhere on the internet that um, very early in your career, in the in the late '80s, when um, your first group, Organized Confusion, was still called uh, simply Two Positive MCs, um, that you were the beatboxer and your partner Prince Poetry was the <laughs> MC. Is that true? Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, I mean, in, in late 80s, I mean, the culture of uh, hip hop was just running rampant uh, and it encompassed more than just obviously emceeing and DJing. It was very dance heavy, very art heavy. And uh, I went to the High School of Art and Design and it was so rampant in the school. I just wanted to be a part of it in any way that I could and and the first thing you know was like all right I haven't uh wrote any songs yet so I'll provide whatever I could provide as I I try to get this group started and um we got together and we started uh just doing it hobby wise and uh when I listened back to what we did with with him rhyming and me beatboxing it sounded pretty uh, awful. <laughs> so that's when I was like, oh, this is this sounds nothing like what, what the guys in the park do and the stuff that I heard. And, and that was a good thing. I think that we were able to uh, see for ourselves that we were uh, quite unpolished and needed a lot of work if we were ever going to pursue anything professionally with a, with a music career. So... Uh, before we even uh, let that stuff out of the house, you know, we, we worked diligently at uh, at least uh, getting it to, to a, a form where we could at least let people hear it. And it would be, you know, we felt it would be adding something and original. And that's a word that was real big back then that, that I don't know how that plays now, but we were dead set on trying to lend our brand of style or lyricism or content to the art form and try to be as original as possible. I want to talk in a second about how different organized confusion was 
from the rest of the you know musical landscape of uh, 1989, 1990 when when you guys made your first recordings. But before that, I want to ask you: Have you beatboxed since you quit beatboxing in Organized Confusion? <laughs> I uh, it's funny. Um, I don't have to worry about letting the the cat out of the bag. It, it's a routine I'm trying to put together for the show in Brooklyn to where uh, I beatbox and my DJ comes from behind and we're, we're imitating a song uh, of an artist called Milk D. And it's supposed to sound pretty lame on purpose. And then he goes back behind the tables and he plays the actual record. And then we're going to bring this artist out as a special guest to actually do the song. So... I will get to display my beatboxing skills live at the at the, at the festival. <laughs> Can we get a taste, Pharaoh? Can I insist? Uh, oh, I'm so embarrassed right There's now. There's a microphone man. in front of you right now. Let's hear it. <laughs> no. I will not I take no even, for an answer. I can't even. I can't even. I'm smiling so hard. I can't even fix my teeth to do it. <laughs> You're disappointing America right now, Pharaoh Monch. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about Organized Confusion. Um, Organized Confusion had a a really amazing uh, sound that was uh, very unlike unlike the the rest of the hip-hop world circa 1989 when you guys made your first demo. Um, Did you... How did you come to that point where you were doing something that was so different from what everyone else was doing? I think it's... uh... It's mainly attributed to the influences at the time. And uh, for myself and my partner, we were both uh, art students. So the imagination was there. And I think when we started, uh, you know, writing, we wrote in this sort of uh, cinematic way of trying to bring things to life. You know, we, we saw it so much as an extension of what we were already doing as artists, as well as uh, I had a father who was heavy into jazz and a brother who was heavy into rock and different influences in the house. So, uh, you know, where, of course, I had my, you know, uh, Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and Coogee Rap and KRS-One and these main mainstay uh, influences. There was also like uh, Coltrane and Led Zeppelin and just a, a, a myriad of different sounds in the house that I took a liking to, especially uh, Coltrane and a lot of the uh, the solos, the rhythms of those solos. I tried to emulate and the patterns. Uh, lyrically as well. You will now consider me the apocalyptic one. After this rhyme, henceforth, there is none. No more will exist when I emerge from the mist in which I was born into scorn. Most of you can't even comprehend what I am saying to you, even in my human form. You know, one of the things that I noticed early was that a lot of the artists were really monotone and that it would usually be like, you know, I'm like Cole Jack, I'm better than Beretta. Do what I said, you might should go get her. And um, it was the content and the word. And I think one of the things I wanted 
to implement was, let's say the track had a fluctuating melody, you know, and I would try and follow, like, uh, call the M-O-N-C-H when it is harder, go in affirmate the no no da 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 And if that was the melody, we would try and follow that melodically as well and uh, lyrically as well. So, you know, just bringing a, trying to be a part and an instrument and uh somebody just uh, commented on one of the things recently that I did sometimes you can uh achieve that so well that if you listen to a song as a as a collective like the artist almost sounds like he's an instrument or just such a part of the record as 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 well as the orator so it's just something that I strive to do a lot As you look from whence forth I come, riding the wind, thus eliminating competition from bird's eye view. I'm descending in helicopters in a village raid. Flesh will burn when exposed to the poetical germ grenade. I'm highly intoxicating your mind when I'm operating on cell walls to membranes, cytoplasms, and protoplasms disintegrate. I'm eliminate. I'm not on one has them in battle. I display sure. a nuclear raid battle. One of your um, early mentors and, and the guy who put together your uh, Organized Confusion's first demo record was a producer named Paul C., who's a, a sort of a very important figure in hip-hop history, but also one who you know, m might not be uh, on in the front of the mind of uh, the average hip-hop fan. Can you tell me a little bit about how, how you first had a relationship with him and, and what he meant in, in your early recordings? Um, <clears throat> Paul C. I mean, it's, it's, uh, every time I, I, I think back to him, I kind of get uh, choked, choked up in thinking about it. It was a real emotional experience in that uh we were uh just starting out and independent and getting our chops up in the studio and uh first time really going to professional studios out in queens and um this guy was revered um with working with such artists as rakim and g rap and ultra magnetic and you know, the the place where we were recording the songs was revered as well. Uh, it's one of the, the more famous studios in Queens. And so we're in there working on some demo stuff, and he walked into the room to get some tape. And uh, that lasted all of about 10 seconds. But um, I guess it was enough for him to hear that we, we've had something. And... Uh, he inquired about the group and reached out to us and you know back then we were still STP and you know he wanted to work with us and that that was just an insane honor and uh we started working with him and you know he taught us song structure and bar structure and song arrangement you know just coming from a, a situation where you're pretty much an MC's MC you know, you're not really thinking in terms of song structure, which is a problem problem that a lot of uh, new artists have. And so uh, not only did he teach us that, but uh, it was personal with him. You know, music was a love. And I, I, for the first time, I got to see someone who loved and uh, really uh, was in touch with, with something that they were passionate about, 
in a, in a deeper way that I was and further than I could imagine at the time. We would, he would just play music for hours. We would go out to eat, go to the movies. I remember seeing the first uh, Batman movie with him after a day of like just playing music and driving around and talking about ideas. And, uh, you know, it kind of let us know that everyone uh, in the music industry wasn't stern and business, but some people were still passionate about the art form. And, you know, that that's kind of where I developed you know, my sensibility and my passion from. And uh, we developed a demo. It, for, it, it went on to get heard by Def Jams and Elektra and big wigs at labels. And then uh, <clears throat> later that summer, <clears throat> Paul C. Uh, was murdered. Uh, I think an interesting thing that I'm leaving out, which, you know, he, he made me feel like it, it, it was no reason to even mention it, is that he was a white producer but it was just uh, the funkiness and, and the soul of his touch was just insane. And a lot of producers came up under things that he implemented into uh, production at the time. And Large Professor and Large Professor went on to, you know, implement a lot of different techniques in hip hop that I honestly feel uh, uh, Paul C., you know, pretty much changed uh, a great direction of of early hip hop and and how it turned in those years. So, him him being murdered that summer, it really threw organized confusion for a loop because uh, you know, he was executive producing the music, producing the music, and we just didn't know which way to turn at that point. So, that was a a big blow and a huge blow. And I just felt like uh, he was so early in his career, even though he was uh, revered, that it was just such a shame that uh, we didn't get to grow with him and I didn't get to nurture more of uh, what I wanted to do under his tutelage. It seems kind of amazing now uh, for me to have been, you know, reading about him and knowing about him as this legendary mentor figure to people like uh, yourself and, and Large Professor, and to know that when when he was killed, he was only 25. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I never had uh, experienced someone uh, close to me uh, losing their life like that, uh, you know, having their life taken away from them. So uh, it was pretty a pretty jarring experience and, and just really pushed us into a, a, a place where we had no idea we were going. Subsequently, you know, the first album becomes so experimental sounding because it was exactly that. You know, now me and my partner are thrusted into a situation where we're sampling and experimenting and stitching things together and just really going off of a vibe uh, and being experimental because that's what we were doing. We were we knew what we wanted to hear, but we weren't technical craftsmen like, like he was. So when you listen back to the first Organized Confusion album, 
and it sounds like, oh man, these these guys were experimental. It's exactly what we were. We were we were taking just uh, pieces of things and bringing it to the studio on the spot. Uh, there was little pre-production, <clears throat> and you know, with a producer like Paul C, you would come in, you would you would lay something. He would be like, this this is this isn't good enough. You need to rewrite it. You need to you know chop this off and you know, you guys could leave now. I'll, I got it from here. I'm going to take care of it. <clears throat> we basically were, uh, you know, taking music. And we after we uh, garnered our deal to the studio and was, was winging it right there on the spot. Uh, some of the writing was, was pre-written and some of the writing actually happened there in the studio. So that's why as, as I, I think it's critically acclaimed uh, music to this day, but we were kind of forced into that situation. Did you feel like at the time, by being so experimental, you were in part writing off the idea of becoming superstars? I, I, I do think, as I look at that, back at that now, and um, me and my partner, we're, we're doing, I uh, just want to tell everybody, we're doing a reunion show at uh, Liberty State Park in Jersey uh, with the Beastie Boys and Coldplay is performing one day. It's a huge event. But just going over some of these old songs, uh, I really do feel like psychologically uh, that experience uh, was traumatic enough to kind of have us think about where we wanted to be uh, in the music industry and how far we wanted to go. I really think, uh, you know, in, in order to be a huge star and clamor for that attention, you have to be willing to open yourself and be magnetic in, in that way. And looking back at uh, some of the moves that we made, I could tell that we really wanted, uh, you know, the critics and the artists to to look at our music favorably, but I don't know obviously how much fame uh, we we wanted and out of that that material that we were doing because we were uh, making a conscious decision to go against the grain in a lot of cases. The, the two of you wrote a song uh, which I. I, is still often referenced as a, a turning point in in hip hop lyrics called "Stray Bullet," which in which each of you wrote from the perspective of a bullet careening through a a, a projects. Um, tell me how uh, how you came up with that premise and uh, why you decided to go with it. I think that uh. It, it it works out to be a balance and, and so to speak in that uh we're both from South Jamaica, Queens. We grew up and around uh a lot of violence and things of that nature, but avoided those situations in part by going to art school and being fortunate enough to not uh be involved in, in those things literally. 
But artistically, you know, having, you know, a great friend who lost his life to gun violence and seeing it and also being art students and a, a fan of film and a fan of uh, Marvel and a fan of animation, you know, it, it's it's like, how do we approach getting these things out of our sis- system, these graphic images without, you know, that's not who we are. We're, we're not big uh, gangbangers or whatever, but how do we approach getting this, uh, this violence that's in our everyday lives out and onto the paper? And, you know, at some point you're like, well, what would the bullet have to say about these situations and where does it come from and who made it and why did they make it and who benefits from it and what is it seeing? You know, what's the perspective that it has on the same thing that we're seeing? Because we've already heard, you know, the the murderer's perspective in hip-hop and never get to hear the, the victim's perspective. Let's, let's put a change on it. I mean, that was my idea going into writing the song. Let the trigger finger put the pressure to the mechanism which gives a response for the automatic. Click to release projectiles in single file, causing me to ignite, then travel through the barrel. Headed for the light at the end of a tunnel, with no specific target in sight. Slow the flow like H2O water. Visualize the scene of a homicide, a slaughter. No remorse for the course I take when you pull it. The results are straight bullet. Niggas who knew hit the ground, running and stayed down. Except for the kids who played on the playground. Cause for some little girls, you'll never see more than six years of life. Trite, full, bling, when she fell from the seesaw. But I'm, um, wait, my course isn't over. Flat out of the other side of my head towards a red ring rover. Then I ricochet, fast pass above the sash. You damn what that nigga say? Aw, oh, fuck it. Next target's Margaret's face. And I struck it. Now it's a flood of blood as it comes to a face and an abundance and brains all over the street. Shame how we had to meet. Dash and bucking, greet my fucking family. They follow behind me in an orderly fashion, bashing through flesh and wild. Crashing through the doors, I project hallways to the fleckle for the tiles. I'm coming for you, little girl. Once inside, I shatter your world, swirl. No more dreams, no hopes when I spray. You better pray to the Pope or the Vatican before I go rat again. I'm mad again, brother. Somebody's mother will be sad again. But whose blue skies will turn gray from the attack of the Mac 11? I'm a straight bullet. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Pharaoh Monch. His most recent album is Desire, and he's headlining the Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival in Brooklyn, New York on June 21st. We'll have more with Pharaoh when we come back in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, great news. Our longtime contributors, Casper Hauser, have been full of exciting new stuff lately. They've got not one, but two hilarious new books in stores. The first is Weddings of the Times, a parody of the New York Times wedding section. And the second is Obama's Blackberry, a bizarre and uh, fantastically funny imagining of the contents of our president's PDA. 
They're celebrating the release of the books with a blowout show at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco on June 16th and with a brand new website, casperhauser.com. Pretty soon we'll be rocketing some new Casper Hauser videos into your iTunes, so keep an eye on your Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast subscription. And no matter what, buy those books. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my conversation with the rapper Pharaoh Monch. Let's talk a little bit about your solo career. Your your first record, um, Internal Affairs, came out at the end of the 90s when there was this explosion of underground hip-hop where hip-hop in some ways bifurcated and more experimental artists sort of created a created a movement that in some ways was in opposition to the mainstream of hip-hop. Um, you had a, a, a hit record on that first album called Simon Says, which is an all-time great uh, party starter um, and just a crazy intense song and also um, was the first big crossover hit of underground hip-hop. Tell me what it was like when when you first uh, when you first came upon that beat, or or, or when you first uh, uh, when you first started to conceive that song. It's going back to uh, the whole <laughs> being a fan of, of of films. Me and my uh, best friends were huge monster movie fans, and for those who don't know that, that's like a huge Godzilla sample, and. You know, uh, he came over and was like, yo, I was at Tower and I picked up the CD of, you know, music from these movies that we used to watch when we were younger. And I heard this piece and I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. You know, imagine uh, doing a rhyme scheme over over this and put it together and uh, pretty much thought like uh, uh from the from the tone and the keys of of this music that I have to be pretty much direct in what I'm saying and not really ask of people to do something but tell people what they should be doing on this song and, and like most of my songs I I took on a, especially on that album I took on a character actually and the character on Simon Says is like this uh this uh guy who's doing an event he's the you know he's on the mic and people are standing around and they're not really into the event at all they're on their phones and cell phones and and you know music is playing they're not really into the party and I said to myself well what would he say <laughs> it is a very direct song to the point where I'm now having brought it up I'm wondering what parts I can play on this public radio show Get the fuck up Simon says get the fuck up Throw your hands in the sky Weezers in the back sipping yak Y'all what's up Girls, rub on your titties. Yeah. yeah, I said it, rub on your titties. New York City, pretty committee, pity the fool that actually in the midst of the calm, the witty. Y'all know the name. Uh, Barrel fucking march ain't a damn thing changed. Uh, you all up in the range of shit, inebriated. Uh -huh. Straight from your original plan, you deviated. I alleviated the pain with long-term goals. Slip my underground loop without the gold. You sold platinum around the world, I sold wood in the hood. 
But when I'm in the street and shit, it's all good. Assume the motivator, boom, control the game like boom, way to rock, clock, dollar flip, tips like a way to block shots, style's way to let my lyrics annoy. If you're holding up the wall and you're missing the point. You know, Get people can listen to you talk now, and you're kind of a you're kind of a soft-spoken guy, but often on records, you're you're huge. Your voice is huge, and your persona is so big. Whether it's like on Simon Says, and it's that kind of hardcore intensity that I, that I alluded to in the intro, or whether it's like uh, another hit you had maybe uh, two years after Simon Says, Oh No, where you're you have a kind the kind of fervor of a preacher. Right. Um, do you feel different when you step into the booth than when you do when you're you know talking to somebody on a radio show? You know, I, even back to Simon Says when the song was at its peak, you know, the label was kind of mad at me because I was doing all these interviews on television interviews and radio interviews, and you know, it would be like, here's the guy who did this song, and I would kind of be talking like I am right now. <laughs> and the label was like, we need more attitude. You need to yell more. You need to yell more. And it's like, you know, this is this is who I am. You know, uh, it, it's all a part of the whole. And, you know, er- everything that I do, I look at it as a as an art. And it's fun for me. It, it enables me to have some some form of therapy through the music. So, if I'm writing a piece that's that's serene and calm and love, then you know it's like who who how do you uh, write this song and how do you approach this song lyrically and tone and breath and you know who is this person and you know embody what this person is trying to say to this woman and you know really try and capture that while you're in the studio. It's funny you should mention a oh no because I I remember the day I laid that and um I scared myself to death like just just going into the studio that day and really really getting in my head that it was like, you know, uh, 50,000 people that I was performing for and uh I was like, you know, you need to pull off this type of performance and this type of hugeness on this song, you know, for it to be big, you know, you can't, this is not Simon Says, it's not this song, this is something different. So if you wanted to feel huge, you know, put yourself in that predicament and how would you approach the record? Pages. I'm intellectual, pass more essays than motorcades, police parades, do we sell a more beef than delays, thus what I vent is just, but you lust to vent is eat relay, huh. hallelujah, feral mantra do ya, maintain the same frame of mind, screw ya, get the picture, sit your seat your greet ya with scripture, I'm equipped to rip your reach ya, pharaoh and Moses, verbal osmosis, coast to coast, we boast to be the most explosive here, ferocious, the lyrical prognosis, your dosage is leaving you mentally unfocused there, MCs just come on round. You're the next contestant, so I'll catch a beat down. Don't be hesitant, sound cracks the sediment. It's evident we better ask you about being so big and being a soft-spoken guy. I know that you're um, you're asthmatic, and I think kind of, you know, moderately to severely asthmatic. Um, and one of the really remarkable things about you as a performer is um, your what they call in hip-hop breath control. 
um, the extent to which uh, you're able to just be in full control of your voice, even when performing, you know, really complex songs, and even, you know, as I've seen it, performing really complex songs live. Um, and I wonder if, um, I wonder how being asthmatic to the point where I think, you know, one time I, I saw you at a show where, you know, you had to take a quick break um, to slide off stage and uh, take a few puffs from your inhaler. Um, how that's affected you as a as a performer and as someone whose breath is his livelihood. I kind of uh, would have to say that it all started kind of because of that. You know, being a child, an asthmatic child, you know, uh, one of the decisions to go to art school was, was, you know, that played a big part in it. And I was, you know, I can't do too much manual labor. I can't have my fireman's dream, you know. So it's like, what are you going to do professionally that will allow you to uh, basically sit somewhere and and use your your art. Um, but when I got to art school, I realized that, uh, this is, this is all art, you know, dance, sculpture, painting, uh, poetry, writing. It can all be artistic. So as I moved to hip hop, you know, um, I looked at the asthma thing as a, as a demon, so to speak. And, something that I would try to combat and something that I would say, you know, in spite of this ailment, <clears throat> let me even try more complex flows and breath control where I'm kind of not letting it get a grip on me or defeat me. And a big inspiration to that again was Coltrane and a lot of the things he would do, you know, I would try and hold uh, notes or uh, runs, lyrical runs that long. And that was a challenge. So, uh, more so than like even MCs, like a lot of the Coltrane stuff was, uh, a challenge for me as an MC. I have a song for the first time on the new record that addresses the whole asthma thing. That's a uh, pretty, pretty, uh, brilliant and a pretty good look uh, introspective look into me for the first time. I think I've stayed away. Like I was, you know, we've been bullets. I've been, you know, all types of things <laughs> in songs and embodied inanimate objects and, you know, people and personas. But I think uh, on this record, people are really hearing my voice for the first time, which is which is really refreshing and a challenge. Your career uh, got derailed when the sort of seminal label that you were on for your first hip-hop record, Raucous Records, dissolved um, in in part because uh, the Godzilla sample on, on its biggest hit was uh, uncleared and in part because it was just a, a mess in general, like a lot of record companies are. And you ended up in this terrible situation where, uh, because of this Godzilla lawsuit and, and various other things, and the fact that maybe they had overstretched in, in spending on, uh, on certain records, you were way in the hole on your record contract, and your record company had been absorbed into a bigger record company, which 
then also itself went out of business and you kind of got dropped into this limbo, which you only managed to get yourself out of uh, uh, maybe two years ago. Um, and so that was, you know, a, a solid period of, of five years of making records and, and being caught up in a sticky mess. Um, and the music that you made on your last album, Desire, I think was, was very different from, uh, from your first record. Um, what, what, in what way were your goals different, you know, five or eight years after you made your first solo album and, you know, 15 years after you had started your career? I think that, uh, during internal affairs, it was like, uh, let's uh still uh dabble in to some of the darker uh points in hip hop and uh some of the angry sides of me <clears throat> and then experiencing the label issues and working my way out of that and just life in general you know love lost and love gained and uh, people passing and work and legal and all of these things um, brought me to a point where you you need family, <clears throat> you need friends, you need perseverance, and you have to work hard at, at you know working through these periods in your life. And I I tried to make desire uh, reflective of who and what it took for me to persevere through the legal uh, woes at the record company and, you know, uh, personal issues and just things you, as you get older, you experience, you know, and um, it sounds like a more mature record, you know, for that. desire when you had not only gone through all of these changes but you were you were reaching a, a stage in your life where um not a lot of people make hip-hop records you know you were in your you were in your late 30s by the time that record came out and that's a time when a lot of rappers are like retiring um and you in your career had almost never gotten to to get its real start at least you know broadly was it hard to keep that passion um 
Actually, I guess not. I guess <laughs> it wasn't hard at all. I guess you can view that as crazy from some perspectives. But for me, you know, even from the entrance, I never viewed a, a cutoff period because um, in that regard, I never looked to the the other MCs and what their cutoff period was. I was looking at Miles and Coltrane and Zeppelin and Plant was still uh, making records and uh, the Firm record had came out with one of the members of Led Zeppelin and I was a big Sting fan and because of these things, you know, I'm listening to Sting's lyrics and I'm like, man, with what he's writing about now on his solo projects and what he's experienced again in love and love lost and life and children and just wisdom that you gain, you know, is, is really uh, resonating with me as a person and as an artist. So I guess call me crazy, but I never really looked at the, what the, the industry or, the demographic of hip hop says the cutoff period should be. In my opinion, I want to hear, you know, Scarface make records about his arthritis in the morning and, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever he's doing to medicate or soak <laughs> his limbs and what happens during the day. And if that doesn't relate, and that's just a, a smaller demographic of, of people who you know, by that, I just hope he's at a place where he could still write and create true music. And I'm not speaking about him specifically. I mean, for that matter, Jay-Z, Nas, uh, whomever, you know, it's just a shame to me that uh, the the artists don't get a chance to stretch and grow. And you have some people that uh, are pushing that envelope. I think Nas is breaking that, and I think Andre 3000 will be making music of some sort, you know, just as long as he's passionate about it, because it isn't contingent of, of, upon, you know, some bubblegum stuff that's uh, for the radio and the 11-year-old the to 18-year-old demographic that is pop radio right now. Your records more recently um, have been more more often explicitly political i mean one of one of my favorite records you've put out in the last couple of years is a, a track called agent orange that was a a single a few years ago and a bonus track on your last album um that is just fierce and fiercely and intensely political Stand anymore within the grip of the man. Y'all wanna ask me who's sane? Peace 
biological gases are eating my brain. It's a political grab bag to wait, Mother Earth. 30 seconds after they bag dad for what he's worth. Thousands will die now, so millions will smile later. This ain't the rock profiles, nigga, they stockpile data from satellites. But you discuss who's style's greater in this killing pool. You playing it cool like Cal Jada. When y'all ready to rock like Led Zeppelin Al-Qaeda with weapons of mass destruction an hour later. What's your identity today? You want some John F. Kennedy or Timothy McVeigh? This Tennessee that left me with a remedy to spray for my identity. Your life is the penalty to pay, motherfucker. Do you feel like you've increased your engagement, not just with yourself as a non-character, but also with the, the world more broadly? I think so. I think that's what uh, wisdom and age and knowledge does. You're forced into a situation where, uh, you know, years ago when you're running around and uh, you just need an inhaler, you're not really thinking <laughs> about certain issues. You know, in this last election, uh, health care was like one of my biggest issues because I have a... Uh, uh, a situation, a chronic asthma situation. So not just for me, for generations after me. And uh, my mother is a, is a senior. And I'm like, where are we going with health care? Well, I'm pretty sure, you know, if you're, if you're young and in high school, it's probably not on your radar. You well, know, uh, the health care issue. Which just brings us back to the whole political thing, which, you know, I've always been a conspiracy theorist, crazed person of my ideas about government and the world as we see it. But, you know, on a more straightforward basis, now you have a situation where it's like, okay, um, I'm, I'm touring the world, I'm touring Australia, I'm touring Europe, and... I have an asthma situation in Copenhagen and I pretty much get the best medical treatment there that I've gotten in my lifetime for free. You know, and I come back home and I'm like, this is a, this is a serious issue that that's a problem for me, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, Pharaoh, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was an honor to have you. Thank you. Farrell Monch is headlining the Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival in Brooklyn, New York City. You can find out more information at brooklynbodega.com. His most recent record is called Desire. And you've got a, you're have got you working on a new one. When is that coming out, Farrell? Uh, we're trying to release that this fall with some singles this summer. The record is called War, which is an acronym for We Are Renegades. It's independent. And I, I smile as I say that because... Uh, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a free-form record. Um, even though it's independent, I've been able to reach out to the likes of Black Thought from The Roots and Talib Kweli and different artists and producers who have lent their talents and skills to the album. And it's, it's I think I, it, it's my best work to date. Well, thanks again, Farrell. Thank you. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Or just post in our lively discussion forums. Maybe you've heard about them. They're online at forum.maximumfun.org. I guess that's about it. I'm off to Max FunCon. Later, gang. Keep on.